Zolife Vest is a proud sponsor of Cardio Nerds. New data from 96,000 real-world patients show advanced arrhythmia discrimination technology was associated with a significant reduction in false alarms. See how these results may improve your patient's experience at lifevesttechnology.com. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated Cardio Nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardiners, this is Amit Goyal. Welcome back to the Cardiners Beyond the Board series, where we build on the Mayo Clinic Cardiology Board Review course to go beyond the boards, to put our knowledge to practice with a series of illustrative cases. Today, we dive into diseases of the peripheral arteries. Joining us are our fellow leads, doctors, Jason Feynman and Matt Delfiner. Jason is a third year and one of the chief general cardiology fellows at Mount Sinai Hospital. He's passionate about advanced heart failure as well as medical education, which is one of the reasons he is a total cardio nerd. And, you know, the first time I got to meet Jason is when he joined the Cardiners Clinical Trials Network as fit trialist for the Paraglide HF study with mentorship from Dr. Anulala. And Jason has just been such a pleasure working with you since that time. Welcome back to Cardio Nerds, man. Thanks, Amit. And I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Matt Delfiner. Matt is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. He just finished his general cardiology fellowship at Temple University, where he also served as a cardio nerds fellow and training ambassador. His passions include all things hemodynamics, medical education, and echocardiography. Hey, Matt. Hi, Jason. I have the privilege of introducing our faculty expert for this discussion, Dr. Amy Pollack. Dr. Pollack is the Division Chair of Cardiac Subspecialties for Mayo Clinic Florida and co-director of the Mayo Cardiology Board Review Course. We are honored to have you with us, Dr. Pollack. Thank you so much to Jason and Matt. I'm thrilled to be here and to be joining this Cardio Nerds podcast. All right, Cardio Nerds, let's meet some patients. Our first patient is a 65-year-old gentleman who presents to his primary care doctor for a routine annual medical examination. His past medical history is notable for hypertension and hyperlipidemia. He has a 20-pack year smoking history. He has no known family history of cardiovascular disease and currently reports no symptoms. Vital signs demonstrate a regular heartbeat of 78 beats per minute and a blood pressure of 143 over 82. His physical exam is otherwise unremarkable. Given his age and smoking history, an abdominal ultrasound is ordered, which demonstrates a 4.1-centimeter abdominal aortic aneurysm. Dr. Pollock, how do you interpret these results, and how soon should he undergo a repeat abdominal ultrasound for screening? You know, the first thing to keep in mind is that normal abdominal aorta size should be three centimeters or less. So right out of the gate, he has a clear abdominal aortic aneurysm. And his risk factors really are his age, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and tobacco use. He certainly is a little bit hypertensive, and I think this is an index diagnosis of abdominal aortic aneurysm that was appropriately found through screening. Given his age, 65 years old, the U.S. Preventative Task Force recommends a one-time screening ultrasound for abdominal aortic aneurysm. So that was a great catch from the ordering physician. So your second question is, you know, when does he need to have a follow-up ultrasound? So there were recent updates to the guidelines for management of all aortic disease. And there are really, for the first time, very clear differences in what that timeline for follow-up imaging is, depending upon if you are a man or a woman. Because we know that women tend to have an aortic dissection at a smaller diameter. 
So our patient is a man. And if we look at his size at 4.1 centimeters, we would want to repeat his imaging with ultrasound in 12 months. Wonderful, Dr. Pollock. It's great to see that the guidelines are acknowledging sex differences in aerotopathies. So surveillance and detection are clearly important here for men and women with different cutoffs for both. But what about disease management? What medical therapies would you consider initiating at this time for a gentleman? Absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, we want to counsel him about the importance of stopping any kind of tobacco products. You know, there's kind of a multitude of options we have to help with that tobacco cessation. I think first acknowledging that this is going to be a risk factor for progression of atherosclerosis if he were to continue having tobacco use. I mean, the second part is wanting to really treat his blood pressure aggressively. And the guidelines would support treating to a blood pressure less than 130 over 80. And we want to be treating his blood pressure, talking about tobacco cessation. And then we don't know from the patient's stem yet if his abdominal aorta looked like there was atherosclerosis there. Usually there is, and he's somebody who certainly has all the traditional atherosclerotic risk factors. And so an aspirin 81 milligrams is indicated for that primary prevention of cardiovascular events such as myocardial infarction and stroke. And then lipid management with a moderate to high intensity statin are really going to be those key components. And this is, as everyone knows, similar to all patients with cardiovascular disease. As a follow-up, Dr. Pollock, can I ask, in terms of initiating statin and maybe adjunctive lipid therapies, what goals are we following here? Or do we consider this guy as secondary ESCVD prevention if he indeed has atherosclerotic cause of AAA? So it's, it's a really good question. To your point, I think he likely has underlying atherosclerotic disease as the etiology for his AAA. And so we're going to be wanting to treat him as an atherosclerotic disease equivalent in terms of our LDL targets. If we find out you know, later that he has polyvascular disease or diabetes plus the atherosclerotic disease, and those are certainly the patients that really are the, the pinnacle of our cardiovascular risk and that we're wanting to treat their lipids to the most aggressive level in terms of getting their LDL cholesterol down, you know, definitely less than 70 and potentially less than 55. Thank you. Dr. Pollock, as a second follow-up, are there specific antihypertensives that you prefer in this setting? That's a really good question. If we think about the HOPE trial, you know, so ACE inhibitors were studied in patients with known cardiovascular disease, and there was a pretty good representation of patients with peripheral artery disease. There is a reduction in cardiovascular events with using an ACE inhibitor. Other than ACE or ARB, we're not getting any history of him having, you know, HEFPEF or, you know, or diabetes that would otherwise guide our management. So just the AAA by itself, otherwise no. Bringing it back to our patient, he returns one year later for a follow-up abdominal ultrasound, which demonstrates an interval increase in the size of his aneurysm to 5.2 centimeters. He remains asymptomatic at this time. Dr. Paula, what are the current recommendations for surgical intervention or abdominal aneurysm, taking into account either absolute size or the interval increase over a one-year time period? Oh, this is such an important point. So the guidelines, this part had stayed constant from the older version to the newest update last fall. So if you have growth of more than five millimeters in six months or 10 millimeters in 12 months, then that's an indication to refer that patient for either endovascular or open repair of the AAA. So he went from 4.1 centimeters to 
two centimeters. He has eclipsed that growth rate over that one year period of time. So based on that delta in the growth of his aneurysm, I would absolutely refer him for procedure for his AAA. As we think about that different cut points for a woman, it's the same in terms of that growth rate. So five millimeters in six months or 10 millimeters in a year, that part's the same for men or, or women. But the part that's different is that if we were just looking at a aortic diameter above which is going to prompt us to refer a patient for repair, it would be 5.5 centimeters for men and it's five centimeters for women. So this is something that is really nicely outlined in this most recent guideline update and I think is really critical for us to all keep in mind as we're seeing patients that it's 5.5 for men and 5.0 for women. Just one side question, but is there any data for indexing these values to body surface area rather than hard cutoffs of 5 and 5.5? You know, it's an excellent question. There's more robust data that then was translated into changes in the guidelines for the thoracic aorta, whether or not you're indexing to height or to body surface area. But there are studies that where you can look at a table of the indexed values that didn't translate into kind of guideline level recommendations, I think because of just a smaller data source. But if there are patients where you're meeting with the individual patient and you're like, gosh, just based on their body size or their height, you're worried that maybe we are underestimating their potential risk based on their aortic size alone for the diameter, then I certainly will go ahead and pull up some of those tables and use that as an additional level of decision-making. But in terms of what our cardio nerds need to know for kind of clinical practice as well as for the boards, at this point, there is not size indexed for abdominal aortic aneurysms. Fantastic. Thank you. So based upon his interval growth of 11 millimeters over 12 months, he is referred for repair of his AAA, but he wishes to avoid surgery if possible. Now, Dr. Pollock, for patients who are candidates for open surgical repair, are there outcome differences between open and endovascular repair of AAAs? So in terms of the approach to open surgical repair or endovascular repair for AAA, the first question that you need to ask is, is the patient at a prohibitively high risk for an open surgical repair? If the patient really is at a prohibitively high risk, and it can be really hard to gauge someone's life expectancy, but you know, generally speaking, if life expectancy is under a two-year period of time and they're at prohibitive surgical risk, the studies have shown that even if you did an endovascular repair in that scenario, it doesn't tend to change that patient's longevity. Uh, and so the first question is, is somebody even a potential surgical candidate? And then looking to see between the endovascular and the open surgical, which is going to be the better approach for that given patient. Some of the kind of next tier of that decision is what is the anatomy of the AAA? Is it an infrarenal AAA or is it a juxtarenal? Because that's going to change whether or not somebody is a candidate potentially for an endovascular repair. And then that patient-centered decision-making really is that kind of third level of this calculation in that if somebody goes for an endovascular repair, there is lower initial procedural mortality, which makes sense. They're not going for an open vascular surgery. 
However, there is a higher long-term rate of complications, and those are really driven by endoleaks. So it's kind of failure to completely exclude that aneurysm sac with the endograft, and that can allow the aneurysm still to grow. And so depending upon which is the driver for the endoleak, sometimes it's watchful waiting versus needing to do an, another procedure. So if you're looking at the patient's operative risk and somebody who is moderate to high surgical risk, still a candidate for open surgery, but moderate to high surgical risk, it may be better to go for the endovascular repair because that saves them that perioperative risk of complications, including mortality but just with the knowledge that they are going to need to have more frequent surveillance imaging to monitor for any endoleaks. And then they're going to have that higher post-procedure kind of re-intervention in terms of treating that potential aneurysm sac. Thank you, Dr. Pollack, for that thorough answer. But I, I am wondering, is there a role for family screening here? Hypothetically, let's say patient has a 61-year-old brother no known cardiovascular history, no tobacco history. Would his brother warrant screening for an abdominal aortic aneurysm? Excellent question. And the answer is yes. So the age and the degree of the level of recommendation has varied over the years. However, the most current guidelines would say that it's a recommendation class 2B if you are under age 65 man or woman, and have a first-degree relative who had a AAA, and then to consider screening for AAA. And speaking to some of the sex-based differences, this was really the first set of guidelines where I feel like it was very clear that women who had a family history and a first-degree relative were given that same priority for screening for AAA, which was an exciting update with the guidelines. So under age 65, family history and a first-degree relative, it's a class 2B recommendation to go ahead and screen. And gosh, it's such a simple and inexpensive thing to do. I would certainly advocate for this patient's brother to get screened. The level of recommendation increases to a class 1 for family members who are over age 65 and they have a first-degree relative of a patient with a AAA. So I would say really kind of for either age group, if they have a family history and a first degree relative, I certainly would recommend getting a screening ultrasound. Thank you. And I think that closes out our first case. It's time for our second case. A 72-year-old woman with a past medical history of coronary artery disease, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia presents to your office for evaluation. She reports that over the past four months, she has developed gradually worsening right leg pain with exertion. She now has to stop walking after three blocks due to a cramping sensation in her right thigh, which improves with rest. She currently smokes one pack of cigarettes per day. Her blood pressure is measured at 152 over 83 in her right arm. She has continued to take aspirin 81 milligrams daily, atorvastatin 20 milligrams daily, and metoprolol succinate 25 milligrams daily. Arterial brachial index is obtained for further evaluation, which demonstrates a right-sided ABI of 0.93 and left-sided ABI of 1.1. Dr. Pollack, do our ABI results suggest or rule out peripheral arterial disease? What is the next step in her evaluation? Well, this, this is really a fantastic case because this is so true for real life. We see many, many patients that are very similar to this 72-year-old woman. So her ABI test does not rule out peripheral artery disease. And I think there's a couple of potential next steps. 
for this patient, as it was outlined, she's already somebody who has known coronary disease, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and then was coming in with symptoms that really sound consistent with claudication. You know, she's having to stop walking after three blocks. She's describing it as a cramping sensation, you know, improves with rest, and she's an active smoker. So she's somebody who really is giving us a, a pretty high pretest probability of having peripheral artery disease as a cause for her exertional leg symptoms. You know, keeping in mind that women, more so than men, tend to present with lower extremity symptoms where they don't tend to say pain. It can sometimes just be that cramping discomfort. It can be a heaviness, a fatigue, just kind of curtailing the amount of activity that they're doing. So definitely high pretest probability for her to have peripheral artery disease. And then her right-sided ABI is borderline. It's in that borderline ABI category. And completely abnormal ABI is going to be less than 0.9. And then normal is going to be 1.0 or greater. So that right side is borderline. The left side is in a normal range. So borderline ABI in a patient with a high pretest probability, I think doing an exercise ABI test would be a fantastic next step. And for this, there's really two different ways you can do it. There's a dedicated treadmill protocol, and we're not talking about the, the Bruce protocol or even the Naughton protocol. This is a much slower pace on the treadmill and often not at really any incline. Or you can even have patients uh, in the exam room just kind of stand where they're facing the wall, put their hands on the wall to stabilize themselves, and then just do calf raises. And I don't know about you all, but it is hard to do a whole lot of calf raises, even without peripheral artery disease. And this is really going to flare their calf muscles if they do have underlying obstructive PAD. So you would then repeat the ABIs after that exercise. And what you're looking to see is a decrease in ABI by 20% or a decrease in the ankle pressure by more than 30 millimeters of mercury. And this is going to allow you to diagnose really a little over more than 20% additional patients with PAD where you're really bringing out that change in EBI after they've exercised. Thank you for explaining all that, Dr. Pollock. And that's exactly what uh, we did. Exercise ABIs were obtained and they demonstrated a right-sided ABI of 0.73 and left-sided ABI of 1.2. And Dr. Pollock, there have been several recent trials on medical therapy, including those evaluating the role of oral anticoagulants. Based upon this patient's history and now her exercise ABIs, are there some changes that you would recommend to her medical therapy at this time? Absolutely. There's, I think, many things that need to happen next as we try to really optimize her guideline-directed medical therapy. You know, she is, she's already on an aspirin. We'll circle back to that in terms of the oral anticoagulants. But she's on a pretty low dose of atorvastatin, so we could certainly increase that to a high-intensity statin. Her blood pressure is not at goal. She was 152 over 83. So you certainly want to intensify her antihypertensive therapy. You know, again, an ACE or an ARB could be indicated. Making sure she doesn't have undiagnosed diabetes, so getting a hemoglobin A1C. She's still actively smoking, and so really leveraging any and all resources we have to help her with tobacco cessation. And, you know, before we get into the lifestyle changes and exercise, let's talk about some of the anticoagulant options that we have. So this is where we've, I think in cardiology, we've been traditionally very antiplatelet focused. And so this is a paradigm shift where we're thinking about a dual pathway, where we're not only trying to inhibit the platelet side of things, but also trying to inhibit the thrombin production. 
So this was from the COMPASS trial that was published back in 2017. And as I think most people are, are familiar with at this point, it was a large number of patients, over 25,000 patients. Almost a third had peripheral artery disease and 90% had coronary disease. And I think it's really important to be thinking about this polyvascular designation because as we're trying to identify which patients are likely going to benefit from the most aggressive therapies, the polyvascular patients, if you look at the REACH registry, they are at extremely high risk for cardiovascular events and also for limb loss with peripheral artery disease. So circling back to the COMPASS trial, it looked at using low-dose rivaroxaban, so just a 2.5 milligrams twice a day with aspirin, and this was done at a aspirin 100 milligrams a day, versus randomizing to the second arm, which was rivaroxaban 5 milligrams twice a day. And then the third arm that was randomized to is just the aspirin all by itself. And they found was that there was a reduction in major adverse cardiovascular events over the almost two years these patients were followed for. There was an absolute risk reduction of 1.3%. So that's a relative risk reduction of 24% and a number needed to treat of 76. That sounds pretty good. It comes at a cost, as you would expect, of increase in major bleeding. So 3% more or less for the rivaroxaban plus aspirin versus about 2% for the aspirin all by itself. But if you then start to look at polyvascular patients, the polyvascular patients derived the greatest benefit. So if you were a polyvascular patient and you were just on aspirin all by itself, the way our patient is right now, you have an event rate of a little over 8%. But if you were on the low-dose aspirin plus the low-dose rivaroxaban, then your event rate decreased to about 5.5%. So there certainly is a reduction in major cardiovascular events and also major adverse limb events or MALI. So I think this isn't something where every patient who has an abnormal ABI absolutely needs to get put on low-dose rivaroxaban plus aspirin. However, I do think that it is critical that we have a patient-centered decision-making looking at bleeding risk, cost of the medication, cardiovascular risk and potential risk for acute limb ischemia or amputation. And if this was a patient who then went on to have, you know, acute limb ischemia, this is, I think, even more so where that benefit of the lotus rivaroxaban and, and aspirin comes in. One more thought just to kind of close the loop on this side of things is that long-term bleeding risk really decreased for patients that were on the aspirin plus low-dose rivaroxaban. So if you looked after that, being on it for one year, going on to that second year and third year, there was no difference in bleeding risk between just being on aspirin all by itself or the aspirin plus the low-dose rivaroxaban at 2.5 milligrams, but certainly helps to decrease the risk of amputation, acute limb ischemia, and cardiovascular events. Well, that's terrific. It sounds like there is strong data for the use of low-dose rivaroxaban for secondary ASC prevention, limb loss outcomes, particularly for patients who are high risk of MACE and low risk for bleeding. But what about lifestyle or non-pharmacologic interventions? And how would you recommend initiating those, especially at this time for this patient? Oh, absolutely. This is one of the mission-critical parts. In addition to the tobacco cessation, which we already touched on, um, the the two kind of cornerstones of the lifestyle or non-pharmacologic interventions. The first one would be exercise. 
And it, it was exciting that several years ago, after I think many years of advocating for coverage for supervised exercise therapy and patients with PAD, this was then covered by CMS. And as a result, many, many cardiac rehab programs across the country now have not only the traditional cardiac rehab program for patients who have primarily are recovering from cardiac issues, but also a supervised exercise training for patients with peripheral artery disease. And the most impressive data that I think goes into the benefit of exercise looks back at the CLEVER trial. And this was from 2015. And there was data out to 18 months. And what this trial did that was so cool was that it randomized patients with peripheral artery disease who had focal aortoiliac region stenosis. So something that just looked very attractive to intervene upon. And patients had to have stable claudication symptoms. They were randomized to one of three arms. So just optimal medical therapy alone was the first arm. Second arm was OMT plus supervised exercise. And then the third arm was OMT plus the stent revascularization. And if you follow these patients out in this study to 18 months time, what you find is that whether or not you had the supervised exercise or the stent revascularization, both, you know, again, with OMT, either group exercise or stent, they both improved for their peak treadmill walking time. And there was not a statistically significant difference in that peak treadmill walking time at 18 months, whether you had supervised exercise or stent revascularization. Both certainly improved compared to OMT just by itself. So there is absolutely a role for patients who have stable exertional leg symptoms to consider doing a supervised exercise therapy even first before patients are referred for a potential revascularization procedure. The current peripheral artery disease guidelines are now from several years ago and are, are in the midst of being updated. But for right now, there's a path where patients can go on to supervised exercise therapy before considering revascularization or given the option for that patient-centered decision-making to go on to revascularization first. But that exercise data is so impressive and, and it really does work. The second part, in addition to the exercise, would be just having that conversation about what's the right type of diet to be eating. And so many of our patients with peripheral artery disease also have diabetes, and so that's more of a focus on the diabetic diet. But there's that overlay both for a diabetic diet as well as non-diabetes for the Mediterranean diet. And the PREDIMED study from Spain that looked at Mediterranean diet uh, saw an improvement in essentially symptomatic peripheral artery disease. If you were following a Mediterranean diet, people were less likely to develop symptomatic peripheral artery disease. So Mediterranean diet absolutely is what I would recommend in addition to supervised exercise therapy, as well as the medication changes that we had highlighted. Thank you. And for our patient, despite improved blood pressure control with Ramipril, despite smoking cessation, and despite a graduated exercise program, she continues to report right leg cramping, which impacts her quality of life. Dr. Pollock, what is the role of invasive angiography at this point? But yeah, I think you've highlighted that she's somebody who was really trying all of the initial medical therapy. She did the graduated exercise, a supervised exercise program, stopped smoking, has better controlled blood pressure, 
but really is having lifestyle-limiting claudication symptoms. So I think at this point, it is absolutely reasonable and guideline-supported to consider revascularization. And so I think there's more than one right next step. It is reasonable to do cross-sectional imaging with a CTA to get a roadmap of what her anatomy is to help guide. Is this something that could be treated with a percutaneous approach or are we needing to think about a vascular surgery approach versus just going ahead and doing an angiogram? And I, I would imagine some of that difference in practice will hinge upon if the patient is being seen by somebody who's an interventionalist or a proceduralist versus a non-invasive individual. But then also, we weren't getting anything else from her history, physical exam or ABIs, where we are really worried about multi-level disease or you know bilateral disease. If she was somebody who had diabetes or had an abnormal ABI on both legs, or if as we're looking at the segmental pressures and the, and the PVR waveforms, if we're like, man, this looks like there's going to be multi-level disease. Those are the scenarios where I would advocate for considering cross-sectional imaging roadmap ahead of time to guide what happens next. But for her, I think doing invasive angiography would be a very reasonable next step. Thank you. And she did have invasive angiography and it demonstrated an 80% focal stenosis at the level of the right common femoral artery. So Dr. Pollack, we have this focal stenosis. Should she be referred for revascularization at this point? And if so, endovascular or surgical, and how do we decide between these options? Yes, I, I think for her, she's symptomatic on good medical therapy, did supervise exercise, has a focal significant stenosis, the right common femoral artery that would certainly explain her symptoms. Yes to revascularization as the first part. And then the second part, there are several factors that go into that decision about endovascular versus open surgical repair. And Full disclosure, I am a non-proceduralist, so this is from my non-interventionalist perspective. But kind of the three key things that I think about are, so the first thing I'm looking at is where is the location and length of the stenosis? And if we're thinking about inflow, that's aortoiliac, and outflow is infraguinal. And so there's the task classification that we use for aortoiliac and femoral popliteal disease. And fundamentally, it goes from A to D, but really like an A classification, A lesion, it's going to be a short focal stenosis or occlusion where you're thinking endovascular is the way to go. On the other end of that spectrum for a task D classification, it's a long stenosis or occlusion where we're going to recommend somebody going for surgery. And then, so the first one is location and length matters, looking at that task classification. What you're describing is really a task A type of stenosis. So the second thing I think about if we're engaging the idea about open surgical is if they went for surgery, what's that long-term patency? And by long-term, it would be five years for the graft because we know that a vein graft is going to have that higher or longer than patency compared to a synthetic graft. And then the patency of a synthetic graft really goes down as you do a graft that goes for popliteal. The third kind of more overarching principle is wanting to gauge what is that kind of risk-benefit ratio for the patient that you're counseling. And so we're looking at what's the chance of procedural success and long-term patency versus risk of complication and recovery time. So with that rubric, everything that you've described, really, I would say this would be more of an endovascular approach for this patient. Thank you so much for that fantastic discussion, Dr. Pollack. I believe we have one last patient that we'd like you to meet. We have an 82-year-old woman 
the past medical history of hypertension and atrial fibrillation, who presents to the emergency department with worsening left leg numbness and cramping on exertion. Prior to this week, she reported that she was in good physical health. She was exercising frequently and didn't report any symptoms or limitations. But for the past week, she has endorsed a frequent feeling that her leg is asleep. With exertion, she's now describing a cramping sensation in her left calf. She reports that currently, she is prescribed nifedipine 60 milligrams daily and apixaban, which she takes twice daily at 5 milligrams. She notes that sometimes, though, she does forget to take her medications. On physical exam, we note an irregular rhythm at a heart rate of 72 beats per minute. Her right dorsalis pedis pulse is 2 plus, and the left is non-palpable. On Doppler, a faint signal can be noted. Dr. Pollock, we know that acute limb ischemia can go through several stages based upon pulse and symptoms. How do you contextualize the stages and severity of acute limb ischemia? I'm really glad that you all included this acute limb ischemia patient case in addition to our patient with more stable claudication and then with the AAA. Because I think in the cardiology side of things, that acute limb ischemia is, is oftentimes something that's not like front and center of our, of our minds and our clinical practice. If we kind of think back to those symptoms of that arterial occlusion, it really starts with those six Ps. So somebody coming in with pain, pulselessness, pallor, paresthesias, poikilothermia, just having a cold extremity and temperature deregulation, and then paralysis really being the end of that progression. But to your point, you know, when somebody's coming in with an acutely ischemic leg or foot, unfortunately, the minority of the time is it a completely viable foot or leg where you have just a very clear arterial Doppler? You know, no sensory loss, no paresthesias, no muscle weakness, just coming in with pain, but still having very clear arterial Doppler. So that's about 10% of the time that would be a, a viable limb for acute limb ischemia. About 45% of the time, patients are coming in with either salvageable or threatened limbs. And this is where you kind of have a faint arterial Doppler for salvageable, maybe plus or minus some sensory loss. The important differentiator between a salvageable leg and then a threatened leg would be the presence of muscle weakness is really when you start to get the threatened limb joined with paresthesias, and then you've completely lost that arterial Doppler. And so that's getting certainly to be much more severe and taking us one step closer to that non-viable limb where there's no arterial Doppler sound presence. There is a profound sensory loss and then paralysis. And so that kind of third critical stage, that non-viable is going to be what we want to avoid at, at all costs. So our patient is started on IV heparin for the acute limb ischemia. Dr. Pollock, how do you decide between open and endovascular intervention for this patient for the acute limb ischemia? First and foremost, as we're thinking about acute limb ischemia, I think it's helpful to think about this as the equivalent of a leg attack. You know, we're, we're so used to kind of mobilizing action for heart attack or for, a, you know, brain attack, you know, stroke. But this acute limb ischemia is really a leg attack. And so we want to be able to act quickly. And if their symptoms have been going on really for, you know, clearly less than two weeks and somebody doesn't have a contraindication to an endovascular approach, which oftentimes includes catheter directed lytics, plus or minus like mechanical devices to help 
Roto-Rooter that clot out. You know, if so, if somebody is a candidate for endovascular, it's almost always going to be that best approach for acute limb ischemia because you're going to be able to open up that occlusion and restore distal blood flow quickly and, and treat that leg attack. So, you know, contraindications to using catheter-directed lytics as part of an endovascular procedure would certainly be if somebody had recent surgery, if they had an intracranial injury or neoplasm, if they were otherwise at a high bleeding risk. Those would be the big ones. Uh, and then if any of those scenarios were contributing to them, what was going on with the patient, that's really where you're looking at surgical. And then the other component of this is that sometimes it's really hard to tell how long the symptoms have been going on for. The patient scenario that we're talking about, she gives a really pretty clear history that just within the last week, she was feeling good, you know, exercising frequently, and then just boom, had acute limb ischemia, a leg attack. But if it's a patient who maybe had some kind of chronic limb ischemia and then it acutely worsened, it can be hard to tell, is this really within that first, you know, under two-week window? So if you're thinking this is more subacute symptoms, maybe have been going on a little longer than two weeks. I think that's really where there's the, the strength in the surgical approach because you can do thromboembolectomy. You certainly can do low extremity bypass, endarterectomy, and would still have the option of doing some intraop thrombolysis. First and foremost is trying to restore blood flow to that limb and treating that acute limb ischemia. And central to that is just recognizing that this is an acute limb ischemia event and responding quickly. And it is sobering to start to look at heat maps of our country in terms of risk for you know non-traumatic lower extremity amputation, you know, really related to peripheral artery disease and whether or not it's acute limb ischemia or chronic limb ischemia. There are very sobering differences in rates of amputation depending upon where you live in our country and depending upon what someone's race and ethnicity is. And so we really need to be very attentive to patients who could be coming in with acute limb ischemia and making sure that we're treating them aggressively and getting blood flow restored. Dr. Pollock, thank you for a phenomenal discussion for this patient and for all the patients that we've discussed tonight. I think you have all learned a ton about peripheral arterial disease based upon your fantastic insight. What are your main takeaways for the cardio nerds? Thank you guys for inviting me to be part of this Cardio Nerds podcast. And thank you for just for the awesome work that the whole Cardio Nerds community does. It is just really cool to, to see what you all have been doing. So I think some take homes I would say would be number one, if you're concerned that a patient could have claudication as a contributor to their change in exertion or symptoms of exertion, and they have a borderline resting ABI, it's a great opportunity to do exercise ABIs. That's first take home. Second one is that, you know, patients are unlikely to present with classic intermittent claudication. So just being savvy that it may be more of a fatigue or they may come in saying, well, I have arthritis or neuropathy or I'm just tired. I fell off the wagon with exercising, you know, coming with any excuse for why they're not walking as much, but making sure that as clinicians that were checking those distal pulses and talking to patients about their ability to, to walk. And you know, as I mentioned just briefly, and this would be a whole other huge topic in and of itself, but there really are critical health disparities in incidence of peripheral artery disease. Black Americans in particular are at very high risk for peripheral artery disease more so than, than many other groups. Hispanic Americans are at an increased risk for complications from peripheral artery disease. The, the list goes on. 
So really critical health disparities. And then polyvascular disease. I think if there's one just really key takeaway, it would be looking at patients and thinking about, is this somebody who has polyvascular disease? Because they would then be a patient at very high risk for both cardiovascular disease complications as well as limb complications. And then thinking about that benefit with decreased cardiovascular events, reduction in limb events for patients with peripheral artery disease treated with low-dose aspirin plus the low-dose rivaroxaban 2.5 milligrams BID. Again, balancing that increased bleeding risk to wanting to make it really a patient-centered decision. And then lastly, supervised exercise therapy really does work and make sure that we refer our patients with PAD for that. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pollock. This has been a phenomenal discussion. And on the topic of disparities in PAD, I want to just give a quick shout out to Dr. Victoria Thomas, who is cardiology fellow and cardiac scholar at Vanderbilt University going into interventional cardiology. And she received the Cardiac Scholarship Award for her project called Praise or PAD Raise Awareness in Sacred Environments, where she is looking into disparities in PAD, both in terms of patient awareness, as well as providing screening out of community churches there in her local area in Nashville. So she's just doing amazing things and really excited to see what she does with that data. Dr. Pollock, you spend so much of your time teaching and, you know, as part of the leadership for the Mayo Clinic Board Review course, I'd like to ask, what do you enjoy about leading the board of course? Oh, you know, it is it is just a lot of fun. I'm always surprised that I think it's a, at least 25% of folks who come to the CV board review course are doing it separate from any taking the boards or certifying. It's just a good general cardiology review. And I like the combination of the kind of condensed lectures that are very high yield topics with the Q&A. And I think it just makes it you know, as much fun as you can have with a pressure volume curve. That's what we're aiming for. But it really is just a great time to, to network with folks, to just share in that kind of community desire to want to be the best cardiologist that we can all be and have fun while we're doing it. Well, is there anything more fun than PV loops? <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, thank you so much for all the time you spent in making this a valuable resource available to all of us. And Matt, Jason, thank you for leading this discussion. It's been wonderful. And Cardio Nerds, see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Tina Reddy. I'm an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy House Thomas and fourth year medical student at Tulane University. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All Cardio Nerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.